0: Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Dan Flores is a writer and historian who specializes in the cultural and environmental history of the American West. He's written 10 books, most recently, Coyote America and American Serengeti, both of which we discuss in this episode. His essays on the environment, art, and culture of the West also appear in magazines such as Texas Monthly and Orion. We discussed Dan's upbringing, his fascination with the West, his early work and literary process... North American evolutionary history, wildlife management, predator hunting, and his most recent project, which we can expect next year. I highly recommend reading Dan's work if you're interested in American history and wildlife, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm joined by Dan Flores. Dan, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, Dylan. Uh, good to be with you.
0: Yeah, thanks, man. Are, are You're in uh, Santa Fe?
1: I am. My place is uh, about 17 miles uh, outside town. I always like living out in the country and having uh, the city to drive into. So Santa Fe is uh, 20 minutes away, but that's just far enough.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, I just visited Santa Fe for the first time this past year uh, during the lockdown. So it was a little bit, you know maybe not the the usual experience but it was beautiful
1: yeah it's a very beautiful city uh you know one of the oldest cities in north america and uh has a still has a certain romantic quality to it
0: It seems like a perfect home base to do what you do which uh you're you're a wildlife historian an author a teacher tell me about kind of uh your your primary interests in academia and, and in writing
1: well, I've I've spent most of my career uh, basically writing about um, what one would call the history of the relationship between people and nature, uh, and I've kind of gone at it uh, through a, quite a number of different angles. Uh, I've even done a couple of books that uh, have been on art history uh, because of an interest in landscape and landscape painting and photography and things like that but primarily the last oh seven or eight years or so maybe the last 10 years i've been uh just writing about uh the relationship that we have with animals of various kinds i wrote a an article about the uh, bison back in the early 1990s uh that went into a fancy historical journal uh the journal of american history and uh then started expanding the coverage to things like wild horses, and uh, wolves, and coyotes, and uh, so it's just kind of gone on and on. I mean, I'm working on a book now that is going to be a big history of the last 15,000 years of human-wild animal interaction in North America, Uh, kind of a daunting task, but I'm learning an awful lot, I'll say that.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome. I, uh, I'm i familiar with your latest two books, which I think uh, have gained a lot of popularity. Coyote America and American Serengeti, I've read both of those, but then I was surprised to see how prolific you are. You have like, what, 10 books?
1: I do have 10, yeah. I mean, I've been, you know, that goes all the way back to 1984, so yeah. uh, that's over quite a span of time. Uh, it takes a uh, a good while to get, uh, one of the kinds of books that I write out. So, uh, I don't, I don't get a book out every other year or anything, but every four or five or six years, I manage to get one out usually.
0: Still impressive considering the amount of research. Uh, before we get into that, can you tell me like, how did you, when did you start writing and when did you start kind of getting interested in history and wildlife? Is this a a lifelong passion?
1: Yeah, certainly the wildlife part has been. I mean, I grew up in a little tiny town in northwestern Louisiana. Uh, my my family's an old Louisiana family; has been there since the uh, the French colonization of the area. And uh, so, I grew up in a setting that was conducive to uh, being interested in animals and nature, uh, and As a little kid, uh, I kind of uh, was going out into the woods uh, pretty endlessly, and because the town was so small uh, that we couldn't even put together a a baseball team, uh, let alone two baseball teams to play with one another, uh, (laughs) I ended up spending a lot of summers reading, and uh, my my, uh, parents were uh, later in their careers, they were librarians, and the little local library was pretty close to home, so I did a lot of reading as a kid, so I, was, I got interested in, in writing and in literature and authors, and so those things all kind of came together, I think. Um, I think I knew probably by the time I was in high school, maybe as a junior in high school, that I was going to end up writing in some some way.
0: What were you reading back then? Did you have favorite authors or were you just kind of devouring anything related to, you know, nature?
1: Well, I was pretty much devouring anything that was in the library. i was (laughs) just a little down of a few hundred people, but uh, uh, I fairly early on discovered Wallace Stegner, you know, I mean, Wallace Stegner, a famous American writer. uh, And uh, I really became charmed by his writing style which was both personal and accessible, and also uh, very smart, uh, very penetrating and interested in a lot of aspects of the West and of nature. And I mean, I was kind of sitting there in Louisiana with uh, big landscape changes within essentially a hour and a half, two hour drive from home. If you drove westward from where I grew up within about two hours, you started getting into the edges of the Great Plains. And so I had at some point fairly early on a real interest in the West. Um, I found out when I was 38 years old going to a family reunion in Louisiana that when I was four years old, my, my family had taken me uh, along on a vacation uh, to the Southwest to New Mexico and Colorado And I had these images in my head from the time I was four years old, which is about as early as you ever form any kind of memories of the West. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so intrigued by what was out there westward from Louisiana.
0: Yeah. That was one thing I was curious about. I have been kind of going back, trying to access some deep memories myself doing this, this show and thinking about, you know, where are these interests coming from and, And kind of remembering some similar experiences. Uh, I went out to Montana to visit family as a young kid and drove through Yellowstone. I must have been four or five years old, and um, it never left my mind, the idea of living in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, So that's interesting. Similar experience there.
1: Yeah, Uh, absolutely. I mean, that sort of thing can completely alter your whole life's trajectory.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So when did you actually make the move from Louisiana?
1: Well, I went, to, uh, I went to graduate school, or at least to get a PhD uh, in Texas. And so I moved a little farther west uh, in the years, the four years it took me to, to do a PhD. But the first uh, university uh, teaching job that I had, the first professorship I had was at Texas Tech out in West Texas. And so I spent um, 14 years, uh, first uh, university job was in Lubbock. And, Mm. you know, a lot of people land in Lubbock and look around and it's endless flat cotton fields as far as you can see. But if you spend a little bit of time probing that area, what you recognize is that the reason it looks flat is because you're on top of a mesa, a plateau, actually. When you're in uh, in Lubbock and Amarillo and that West Texas country, and all around the edges of that plateau is a canyonlands country. And so, when I was in West Texas, I was sort of trying to, uh, you know, turn the place into something that I could uh, feel an emotional kind of connection to. And so, I from the very beginning started going out to these. Uh, caprock canyon land edges mm. of the Llano Estacado Plateau and uh, exploring that country I mean there's a complex of about 14 or 15 big canyons on the east side of the Llano Estacado and the reason it's kind of unknown is because it's below the level of the horizon unlike mountain ranges like you know in Colorado where you are in New Mexico where I am the topography stands up above and in sight when you're out on the landscape. But in that country, all the interesting topography was below your line of sight. So you had to go to the edge of this mesa and suddenly here was all the spectacular canyon country down below. So I, I spent 15 or 14 years in that region and ended up writing a couple of books about my explorations of that that land country out in West Texas.
0: Yeah, it sounds like I need to. I need to go back to some of your older stuff. Uh, I'm from Texas, from Central Texas, and have been out to that area, but I didn't get past the uh, the flat cotton field uh, <laughs> impression. Most, yeah, although most
1: my, people don't. Yeah. yeah,
0: although I will say my family purchases. Uh, my family has a winery in Central Texas and um, purchases a lot of grapes from the High Plains region. It's a pretty good region for growing some grapes out there. Well it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yano Estacado Winery out there is, produces some really great uh, Cabernets.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell me about, like, when you set out to start writing books, was it, uh, you know, what was that first book like? Because you are not a casual fiction writer. You're an extremely well-researched, deep-dive kind of guy. I have to imagine these books take you just – so much time and energy. Um, what was it like jumping into that world?
1: Well, I uh, I had had a, a, a lot of experience as a writer before I wrote uh, Jefferson and Southwestern Exploration, which was my first book uh, back in 1984. Uh, and what had happened to give me that experience is that when I had been in college as an undergraduate, I'd been a, an English uh, major and a history major. I had a dual major. And so I took uh, several creative writing classes. And when I was a junior in college, I managed to, to sell uh, an article to a national magazine. And so for about five or six years in the early 1970s, uh, before I really went off to get a PhD and concentrate on history, I wrote for for magazines, for regional magazines uh, in Louisiana and Texas, but mostly for uh, this trio of outdoor magazines the national uh, magazines at the time. And I guess still are, uh, or were field and stream, outdoor life and sports of field. So I wrote for those magazines for about four or five years when I was in my early twenties and, and got a pretty good feel for, uh, how to cast a story, how to write leads, uh, how to develop a, an arc that had a, some forward momentum to it. So when I began taking on that, that first book, I think it's what you mentioned a minute ago, it was really the deep dive into the research that was uh, the newest part of it. The writing of it was was not a chore for me. That was, uh, in fact, the most delightful part, but <laughs> the research, uh, I mean, that particular book was, I, I discovered that Thomas Jefferson had sent an expedition out, uh, to explore the West after he had sent Lewis and Clark up the Missouri River. He had sent a second expedition up the Red River into the Southwest. Uh, it was, uh, led by a guy named Thomas Freeman and it had a naturalist from the University of Pennsylvania named Dr. Peter Custis who was attached to the expedition and so I found all their materials and I ended up writing uh, a history of that expedition which only made it about 600 miles into the southwest by the way the reason nobody had ever heard of it and most people still haven't heard of it is because unlike Lewis and Clark this expedition got stopped by a Spanish army and turned around and sent back to American territory.
0: Oh.
1: So, they were, they were headed for Santa Fe, they were headed for New Mexico and the Southern Rocky Mountains. But uh, Spain, of course, had a lot more access to that part of the world than they did to Lewis and Clark up on the Missouri. So they managed to stop that expedition. So that was what the first book was about. And I mean, you're not kidding. It was a deep dive into a lot of, a lot of research because I had to get into the Spanish side of the story, uh, the Spanish documents. Uh, I had to get into the natural history world that Peter Custis assembled from his exploration of the Red River. They were on the river for about six months, about half a year. And Custis did a pretty thorough examination of the lower half of the Red River. And so one of the things that I ended up doing, which I think facilitated a lot of the sort of stuff that I do now, is I had to recreate what Custis saw because, of course, one of the things you find out when you study natural history is that uh, natural history has changed a lot. The names for plants and animals have changed and evolved over time. And yeah, you know, it's a very, very interesting and an enlightening kind of thing to do. And, yeah, it took a number of years to do it, but the book was pretty successful. It's still in print. Today it's called uh, Southern Counterpart to Lewis and Clark uh, and is, uh, still, uh, available, uh, on Amazon. And, uh, it gave me a sense of what you had to do in order to be able to write, uh, the kind of books that I ended up writing through the rest of my career. In other words, you had to go ahead and just concede the fact that you were going to probably spend four or five years working on a book before you could get it out.
0: Yeah. Um, I can't imagine and I like most people have never heard of that expedition, so until I, I saw that going through your book list and I was like what the hell is this? The southern counterpart to Lewis and Clark, so Yeah, what uh, the hell is this, huh? I may go back and, and check that one out. Um is there an audio book for that one?
1: No, the all the first books that I did uh really appeared in print before audio technology was a part of the game. And so it's only been the last two or three books that uh, you can get uh, audio versions of and listen uh, in, uh, listen to in your cars or driving across the country. Yeah. And I regret a lot of that. I, mean, I just fielded an email from somebody two or three days ago wanting to know that very thing. Can I get audio books of some of these early ones? And you know, I have to tell them, unfortunately not.
0: That's all right. Um, well, let's talk about some of your more recent work. Um, American Serengeti. I spoke with... Allison Fox a few weeks ago from American Prairie Reserve and I know that you're you've been involved with them and they're using a term that is it safe to say that you coined that term American Serengeti?
1: Uh yeah, I guess I can take I can take credit.
0: I'll give you credit for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> I haven't seen
1: it anywhere else. It just kind of occurred to me when I was working on that book which originally had a different title and oh. about uh, yeah, a third of the way through writing it, it suddenly occurred to me what I was doing, and I had used that term in an earlier book of mine, and had sort of forgotten about it. But it suddenly occurred to me, holy cow, this is actually what I'm, what I'm doing. I'm writing about the American Serengeti.
0: Yeah, it's an apt title. I mean, for people who haven't read it, this is a description of what the the Great Plains looked like at the end of the Pleistocene, and all these this incredible. Um, not only ethnographic and and anthropological findings, but also fossil records of extinct megafauna, uh, you know extinct bison species, short-faced bears, American cheetahs, these I mean it paints a picture of this landscape that really is like the Maasai Mara or the Serengeti. it's it's something that most people never would have imagined existed on this continent. Uh, it's really oh, a stunning read. Incredible.
1: And of course the you know much of the book is actually about the historical version after the Pleistocene extinctions and we lose uh quite a number of those species uh you know the hunting hyenas and and the american cheetahs and and lions and so forth i mean we end up with a version of the american the historical version of the american serengeti is equally fascinating because we have fewer large species but the ecological richness is still the same. And so one of the results is you end up with bison herds that, as had been the case in the Pleistocene, there may have been 5 million bison. With so many other grazing animals gone, we end up with 25 to 30 million bison. So the ecological richness is, is just sort of matched by the numbers of the remaining species in the historical period, pronghorns and bison and grizzlies and You know, and then interestingly enough, because these were animals that evolved here and we reintroduced them to North America, horses, which went wild and replicated their Pleistocene niche in the 17, 18 and 1900s.
0: Let's uh, let's expound upon that. This is one of my favorite stories in evolutionary history, the the, the story of the American uh, horse. So we go back, what, 50 million years? They evolved on this continent.
1: 56 million years ago, horses evolved here, the ancestors of horses. I mean, they were uh, little, very small, three-toed creatures uh, known as Hyracotherium, which uh, hierac is, that uh, uh, means rabbit-like. I mean, they're the size of rabbits, but really? they are in the line that produces equus uh, ultimately during the Pliocene. So we end up with... Uh, several, uh, only 10,000 years ago, several species of American horses. We have uh, 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 zebras, asses, uh, donkeys, all kinds of versions of animals that, in one of the great mysteries of American ecological history, those creatures having migrated across the Bering Land Bridge into other parts of the world, into Asia, into Africa, Uh, into Europe, end up surviving in all those places, but becoming extinct in North America. And so one of the reasons we think of horses today as being uh, an added species, as an exotic to North America and not really native is because of this 10,000 year gap when they were missing. But once we reintroduced them, I mean, because they had evolved here, that's why they so easily uh, went feral and went wild in North America. They were completely pre-adapted to the landscape.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, it's so fascinating. And there is kind of an irony with that. Um, the same thing kind of exists with bison. I was talking to a bison rancher, Taylor Collins. He was telling me when they sell bison meat, they have to put the little triangle on there that says exotic species, Yeah. you know, rather yeah. than a domesticated, which is just, uh, <laughs> it's just backwards. Cause I mean, what, what could be, it's the least exotic thing I can think of to this continent is a bison.
1: Well, it is, you know, although the, the, I would say what my argument would be is that actually the least exotic thing might be the horse, because we think bison probably only arrived from Asia about 400,000 years ago and horses have been here for 50 million years or more.
0: Wow. Gosh, that's so crazy. I I didn't know that they evolved from a little three-toed rabbit. That's even more cool. Um, yeah, about,
1: rabbit-like, anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, American Serengeti. I mean, uh, or I'm sorry, American Prairie Reserve. What's your involvement with them? Are you kind of um, advising them on on things nowadays, or were you just um, involved more near the beginning?
1: Well, primarily, what I have done with American Prairie Reserve is uh, go with them uh, around the country when they do their their donor. Uh, gatherings and parties uh, in order to speak to potential donors uh, and get people interested in what American Prairie Reserve has done. I mean, I'm very definitely an advocate for American Prairie Reserve. I've gone to their annual meetings at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Uh, so I've been on the scene for those. I've done talks, in fact, for their board of directors uh, in Manhattan and um uh, but as I said, primarily what I've done is to go around the country with their representatives and meet with potential donors and, and usually do a talk and a slideshow. And, and what I, in effect, am attempting to do with American Prairie Reserve is make people understand the historical context of trying to recreate the American Serengeti in central Montana. And part of that historical context is that when we started creating American national parks, I mean, we didn't create game parks like Africa did. We created parks that were primarily based around scenery. Mm. When you create parks based around scenery, what everybody was interested in were great big mountain ranges and big deep canyons. And so we got Rocky Mountain National Park and we got Yosemite and we got the Grand Canyon and we got Yellowstone and we got Glacier, but where all the animals were in American history was actually out on the Great Plains, out on the American Serengeti. That's where the version of the Serengeti or the Maasai Mara existed in North America. And the result of this kind of trajectory then is that we ended up with these scenic national parks that aren't that great for recreating what the natural bestiary of North America was like. And so without big national parks on the Great Plains, I mean, we ended up with a couple of them. We got Badlands and Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, We mostly failed in getting big ones farther south. I mean, one of the stories that I talk about in some of my earlier books, like the book on the Yano Estacado, is the National Park Service's attempt in the 1930s to create a million-acre National Park of the Plains in West Texas around that canyon complex, uh, particularly centered on Palo Duro Canyon, Uh with the idea of reintroducing all these animals that had been present in the 19th century. And they ended up, the Park Service didn't really have the money to do it, and they called on private donors the way they had with parks like Great Smoky Mountains and Acadia uh, back east, and the people in Texas weren't interested in doing (laughs) it. They weren't interested in putting up the money to make it happen. So we ended up not getting that Great Plains Park that really would have done what American Prairie Reserve is trying to do now. So what I often do with these donor parties is I tell them these stories about how we missed out on getting this most fascinating part of north america in terms of animals set aside for large nature preserves or game parks and that's what american prairie reserve is trying to do these days
0: it's it's really a unique project i don't really know of a lot of folks around the world who are uh there's some similar work going on in the kazakh steppe and um some areas in south america that Allison told me about, but uh, for the most part, I don't know of people, private, you know, private donors and you know, companies like that. I'm sorry, uh, nonprofits like this amassing. They're trying to amass three and a half million acres. I mean, this is no small feat. Where and I asked Allison this too. Where else do you think this could be applicable? Do you think there's any hope for uh, for the Yano Estacado? you know, in the future or, or other places in the country that where we might be able to do something similar and create these larger preserves?
1: Well, there are attempts to do this on smaller scales in other parts of the Great Plains. And one of those in particular is in Colorado. In southeastern Colorado, a Denver-based organization called the Southern Plains Land Trust has put together so far about 45,000 acres where they reintroduce bison, pronghorns, prairie dog towns, uh, and are attempting to do on a smaller scale what American Prairie Reserve is trying for on a big scale. I mean, what, what distinguishes American Prairie Reserve, and I think sets it apart a little bit from something like the Southern Plains uh, Land Trust, is that uh, American Prairie Reserve has the idea of doing a complete restoration, and that means the predators too. Yeah. So their idea is once wolves, which are only 200 miles away in the Rocky Mountains in Montana, discover that there is a bison herd and an elk herd and lots of pronghorns out in American Prairie Reserve country in central Montana, that wolves are going to be drawn to the area and American Prairie Reserve is going to welcome welcome them there. The same thing is true with grizzly bears, which have lately, because grizzly bears were, their original range was out on the plains. I mean, that's, grizzlies were on the plains primarily because of buffalo, because grizzlies tend to be scavengers and lots of buffalo were dying because of the huge numbers of animals out there. And grizzlies only retreated to the Rockies, really at the end of the 19th century. And now they are, every spring, grizzly bears are going 125, 150 miles out onto the Great Plains. And what American mm-hmm. Prairie Reserve hopes will ultimately happen is that they, Grizzlies too, will discover these these uh, ungulates that yeah. American Prairie Reserve is assembling, and they'll become a part of the mix.
0: I have faith that they will. I mean, different predators, I know, you know, adolescent mountain lions, adolescent Black bears even will will travel pretty damn far, looking for mates, looking for territory. You know, it doesn't seem like a far stretch to think that that some of these predators are going to make their way there pretty quickly and uh, have a field day once they get there.
1: Oh, I, yeah, I absolutely think that's that's what's going to happen. Now, of course, you know the the big question is uh, how the surrounding uh, private landowners who aren't fans of American Prairie Reserve will respond to that i mean you yeah. know people are there. are all all sorts of stories in the montana press about these days about grizzly bears in the spring walking within 50 yards of school children waiting for a school bus to come pick them up and take them to school and uh that's got uh, some nerves for aid as you can imagine but yeah. you know the idea if you can actually put together three and a half million acres i mean that's almost twice the size of yellowstone and you can make it contiguous without too many private in holdings that aren't associated with American Prairie Reserve. Then I think you've got a big enough chunk of land where you can actually have animals like wolves and grizzlies and face fewer conflicts with uh, the larger society outside. I mean, Yellowstone has managed to pull that off. I won't say without any conflicts, but they've certainly managed to pull it off and they have a healthy grizzly and wolf population these days.
0: Yeah, it, it's an interesting point that you made about the development um, of of national parks in that they're not exactly the most suitable land for people. It's a lot of areas where, you know, Yosemite are incredibly steep terrain, difficult to develop, and they got set aside as as national parks. All the fertile river valley bottoms and places where, it was easy to live are, you know, those, those places didn't get preserved in the same way. So it's exciting to hear about projects like that, where you're talking about preserving and setting aside a completely different type of landscape. That's not just rugged, steep mountains, because like you said, elk, grizzlies, even bighorn sheep were out there on the plains. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we yeah. know them as mountain, you know, mountain dwellers, but uh, they would prefer to be out there and where it's easier. Right.
1: Yes. I mean, the reason we think of them as mountain dwellers or, you know, if we think of it at all, we just assume, okay, this is where elk and, and bighorns and even bison are likely to be, certainly grizzly bears, is because we drove them off the Great Plains in the 1880s, 1890s, and early 1900s. I mean, they, the remnant animals essentially fled into the mountains because it was the last place you could hide out. Uh, from encroaching civilization. And of course, the mountains by that time, uh, most of the mountain ranges in the West had already become forest reserves or national forests. Uh, some of them, some regions had become national parks. And so here was the remaining wildlands. While mean, Meanwhile, out on the Great Plains, things were being plowed up and cattle were being introduced. Barbed wire fences were going in. So that great American serenity I mean, if you know, the way to think about it probably is to imagine the Maasai Mara or the Serengeti of East Africa, uh, having people come in with barbed wire fences and ranches and cattle and crops and driving all the elephants and lions uh, into the high country around Lake Victoria or something, uh, and basically running them off the part of the world where they had evolved to. That's essentially what we did.
0: Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I've been trying to understand more about lately, and even the, the hunting side of it is predator control and predator management and learning a little bit more about the North American model and about what we did, a lot of it through your reading, what we did to extirpate Wolves and grizzlies, and tried to with coyotes. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, How do you feel like the North American model has failed to address predators and their role in the ecosystem, in their niche in the ecosystem?
1: That's a that's a great question. I I probably could talk for two hours on it because it's it's sort of one of the the lines that I'm tracking fairly closely in this new book, Wild New World, it's called. Um, Well, one of the interesting things I suppose to, to give us a place to start is that the first environmental law that old worlders from places like England, France, and Spain ever enacted upon arriving in North America was a bounty on wolves and they Mm. did it uh in the plymouth colony within the first 10 years of the settlement of massachusetts there was a bounty on wolves by 1630. one of the reasons i think it happened that way is because the british isles in particular had been completely successful in the previous 150 years in eradicating wolves from the British Isles. I mean, they had driven some of the last packs up in the highlands of Scotland uh, and Northern England, but they had been successful in Great Britain in completely eradicating wolves. And so the idea almost from the very beginning of the settlement of North America, at least on the part of Northern Europeans, especially the English speakers, to a little less extent the French speakers and to less extent than that the Spanish speakers, was that one of the first things you do to civilize a country is to rid it of predators. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we launched a crusade to do this from the very beginning in North America. And we never tried to do any science to see if there was a justification for it. We just went at it. And by the time we finally started doing natural history science, In the 20th century, really, is not until we start studying wolves and coyotes and the role that they played in North America. The guys who do this, particularly Adolph Murray, you know, who studies the the coyotes in Yellowstone and then goes on to Denali and uh, writes a classic book called The Wolves of Mount McKinley. One of the things that Murray says to his audience of mostly scientists is that what what we've got to realize that we haven't grappled with is that these predators and the prey in North America have co-evolved with one another for hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years. And for us to come here and without doing any studies whatsoever, just start trying to kill them, kill all the predators off is one of the most short-sighted things, however successful we are at it, that we have attempted in North America. By the 1950s, one of the stories that naturalists around the world told themselves was that, okay, the Americans haven't made that many contributions to natural history. No American has done anything like Charles Darwin did, for example. Mm -hmm. but the one thing the americans are really good at they are really good at exterminating predators so if you want to figure out how to exterminate predators in south africa or in southern europe or in india the americans are the ones to study because that's been the one thing in natural history they have been the very best at and of course we did it primarily with poison that's how we did it
0: yeah one of my favorite um Things about you know talking about the early early conservationists and of course this, the name of this podcast is uh, an homage to Leopold. Reading Aldo Leopold's work and him, uh, he had an extensive background of predator control in the Southwest, and later on in his life he started realizing how we had gone wrong and started kind of thinking back to some of those experiences, describing you know killing a he, he said, you know, back in those days, we never had even heard of passing up an opportunity to kill wolves. Yeah. If you saw him, it was just, you know, fire on site. And, um, and that's what he did for a long time. And then kind of saw the error of, of his ways later in life and realized this may be a little bit more complex than we thought. And, you know, we've, we've gone wrong here. Um, you know, and of course that was probably not until the 1930s that he was thinking like that. Um, in terms of coyotes, let's get into coyotes. So you wrote this entire book, Coyote America, which is really a fascinating profile of this animal that whose fate is kind of inextricably tied to ours. And you lay out all the reasons why. Um, to get into that, could you talk about the coyote, kind of the profile, where it came from, um, and and what makes it so successful on this landscape?
1: In my view, the coyote may be the quintessential North American animal. Um, And one of the things I I argued in Coyote America, as you know, is that the coyote has been so, such an essence of North American ecological history, right at the very core of it, Uh, the canid family comes out of North American evolution. The canid family evolved here uh, 5.3 million years ago. And a lot of the canids, like gray wolves, for example, ended up leaving North America, spending a couple of million years or more uh, in Asia, in Europe, across the Northern Hemisphere, and then returned to North America. But coyotes were out of a clade of North American animals that never left. They have remained here for more than 5 million years. And coyotes assume their present form between about 800,000 and a million years ago.
0: Um,
1: Yeah, and so they've been howling that, as I I call it in Coyote America, that original national anthem of North America. They've they've (laughs) been howling that for a million years. Uh, Next time you hear coyotes howl, just just think of that. This is a million-year old song that these animals long before we were ever here long before humans uh, were anywhere close to getting to north america coyotes have been singing that song so they they become this kind of quintessential animal that when humans finally get here 15000 years ago coyotes basically greet them at the door uh, as humans began pouring across the Bering Land Bridge into North America. I mean, they arrive at the time of the Pleistocene uh, efflorescence with all these dramatic and charismatic animals. And it says something to me that out of all these creatures, the one that, that native people select to be their avatar figure in the oldest literature in North American history is the coyote. In these ancient coyote tales of the Western American native peoples, they've been telling those tales for 10,000 years because yeah. they saw something so consonant uh, in that particular animal.
0: Over wolves. They chose coyotes over wolves for this. They
1: chose, yeah, they did. Charismatic.
0: Indeed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Chose them over wolves, chose them over bison, chose them over eagles, over bears. It's the the coyote that they decide they're going to make this avatar stand in figure for human beings. And so the way I, I sort of tell this story in Coyote America, what they, what native people basically do is that they make coyote into coyote with a capital C into this semi deity figure where he becomes in their stories responsible for creating the topography of North America, for making the rivers flow the way they flow, for giving people language, giving them fire, teaching them about sex. I mean, he's the deity who does it all and who is on the scene, so he's engaging with them. I mean, it's not some deity up in the sky that you have difficulty ever managing to see or converse with. Coyote is right there amongst everybody, and he he does this very interesting thing that makes the coyote, if, if it's actually a religion, I'm not sure it's a religion, but it's certainly a cosmological way of seeing the world with coyote as the explainer of it. What these stories tend to do is that they're all about helping human beings understand human nature. And so Coyote instead of being this perfect deity to which everybody is supposed to aspire becoming he's a kind of deity who conveys all of our traits good and bad. He's not only benevolent and wise but he's also lustful and he's a glutton and he yeah. he makes all kinds of ridiculous mistakes and
0: they say that he you know he told the first lie and he he stole fire from the gods, and he, uh, yeah, it's such a cool reflection of something. We must have seen something about coyotes that reminded us of ourselves and and our follies.
1: Indeed. I mean, that's really, uh, you know, people talk about coyotes' uh, stories being trickster stories. What I've often told people uh, in, in talks I've done about Coyote America is that what you have to understand about these coyote stories is that the trick is not the important thing about the stories. The important thing about the stories is why the trick works. And the reason the trick works in every instance is because of the fallibilities of human nature. I mean, the tricks work over and over again because we're jealous or we're gluttonous or we're lustful or uh, you know whatever trait uh, the coyote story happens to be illuminating. And so, I mean, that's the role that this animal plays for 10,000 years. And then Western Europeans arrive, no experience with coyotes because coyotes aren't in Europe, but the coyote looks enough like a wolf. In fact, Lewis and Clark call them prairie wolves that we immediately translated our hatred for wolves into a hatred for coyotes. So once again, without ever doing any kind of scientific research into the role that coyotes play in the world, we just decided that the best thing to do was to exterminate them. And so we launched a century long effort to actually wipe those animals out, which uh, in one of the unusual developments of American environmental history, usually when we set our minds to wipe something out, we're able to do it very quickly the coyotes took everything we could give them and took over the very ground we were standing on by spreading out of the west all over the rest of america
0: yeah that's i think what anyone who reads coyote america will start to think back on times when they on their their life experience with coyotes i grew up in central texas they were around you know you mostly heard them you heard them more often than you saw them and then I started, um, hunting and I, I saw them hunting a few times, maybe accidentally called them in with a bad Turkey call or, or whatever they came running. Um, it's something about them. I I've had a bunch of open shots on a coyote and the, in the conventional wisdom sometimes for hunters, at least, uh, that I've heard is, you know, you shoot a coyote when you on site, you know, try to, it's bad for agriculture, whatever. Uh, I I've never been able to do it. I love dogs. Mostly that's why. But uh, they're just so clever and, and beautiful. I just never could take a shot on one. Never had any interest. I knew I wasn't going to eat it. Um, but, but then, you know, you start thinking about times when you lived in a suburban area and you saw one crossing the street. Or you lived in an urban area and you saw one walking down the road. And, and reading your book, you really realize that they're all around us. In every major city, you say, in Chicago, in New York, they're everywhere. And yeah. they kind of followed... Or they they did the opposite. As we spread west, they were able to spread east all the way to the east coast and and south into South America. I mean, what is it about their uh their traits and their you know their ability to adapt that that has made them so successful with our expanding population?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, you know, as you probably remember from the book um coyotes are one of the few animals we think maybe only about 19 of them around the world humans happen to be uh one of that uh group of 19 that are known as fish and fusion animals so unlike wolves coyotes can live both in packs in fusion mode but because they evolved alongside wolves and were also often harassed and persecuted by by wolves they develop this adaptive ability when they're persecuted and harassed to go into fission mode, which means they can basically break out of packs into pairs and singles. And when they do, they tend to colonize widely across the landscape. They tend, in other words, to run from a threat and scatter away from a threat. Wolf packs won't do that. Wolf packs tend to stay together. I mean, one of the classic stories about why it was possible to practically wipe wolves out in the lower 48 is that if you killed one animal out of a pack you could use its scent and get basically every other animal in the pack mm. uh, and kill the entire pack coyotes responded uh, in an opposite way to that they would go into fishing mode and and scatter and colonize into new places and so it enabled them to really succeed at surviving harassment. What scientists finally realized by the 1950s, after we had spent about four or five decades attempting to poison coyotes into oblivion and not being successful at at it, was that you could kill 70% of a coyote population in any given area year after year after year after year without reducing their population. You could kill seven out of 10 of them And that would still not reduce their population because of their strategies for surviving that sort of persecution. So that was one element. The other element is that for 10,000 years, maybe 15,000 years, they've been living among us because their major prey happens to be rats and mice and human dwellings generate large numbers of rats and mice. So coyotes long ago developed the ability to live around human beings and among us. So when we started basically calling on dog catchers in the 19th century to capture stray dogs in cities and put them in dog pounds and we remove dogs from inner cities, coyotes waltzed right into the <laughs> abandoned niche and became urban animals in America. They probably did it first in LA, places like Denver, they must've done it fairly early by the 1880s, 1890s. I mean, in Chicago today, the guy who studies coyotes, the urban coyotes in Chicago, argues that everybody who goes to sleep in Chicago these days, every time you lay your head down on a pillow at night, everyone in Chicago is sleeping within a half a mile of a coyote. I mean, and that's when, in a city of millions of people. So these animals- go quiet
0: in those environments, right? They don't yip at night?
1: They don't yip as much. I mean, there's a famous episode, you know, in the Hollywood Hills where whenever coyotes would howl, uh, wildlife service guys would go out and try to find them. So they've learned now not to howl around those particular locations. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's coyote culture.
0: (laughs) You know, it, I, there are some similarities in my mind to feral hogs, which we, you know, being from Texas, I think about hogs a lot, and uh, just the the kind of being an R species, right? Meaning, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this. Meaning, R species, they they put a low amount of um, they reproduce at a high rate uh, with a low amount of energy into each offspring, versus a K species like humans or or, um, you know, a large mammal, an elephant that has a long gestational period and puts a ton of biological energy into each offspring.
1: No, you're saying that exactly right.
0: Okay, good. <laughs> and, and it just seems like sometimes attempts to uh, extirpate hogs as well are maybe equally futile when we're sitting there setting them up with a corn feeder and then shooting them as they come. Well, the ones that survive, you know, I've seen sows that are, one year old and have already had 10 you know a litter of 10 Um, and they just under pressure like that they seem to just increase their their litter sizes and the frequency with which they breed and um, I don't know I don't know what we're going to do but hopefully you know people can gain some insight on how to manage hogs from learning about what you told us about coyotes
1: yeah, maybe so. I mean, you know, I, I will draw a distinction. I mean, hogs are obviously a, an adventive species. They're a true exotic. Coyotes are a true native. So um, we're sort of dealing in, in uh, apples and lemons in a way, but they're both there's no question. They're both uh, wildly successful uh, at surviving our presence. And that's not the case for a lot of a lot of animals. Uh, you know, I'm perfectly willing to see hogs somehow eliminated, but I don't know how in the world we're going to do it. Uh, they, They continue to expand their range. You know, coyotes, one of the things we know from studies in Yellowstone, for example, when wolves were removed in Yellowstone, and people, obviously, because it's a national park, weren't killing coyotes, is that coyote populations are very much keyed to a carrying capacity of the local prey base. So it's not like coyotes just keep multiplying and multiplying and multiplying until you're up to your ears in coyotes. If you don't harass them so that they're trying to rebuild their populations and simply leave them alone, their numbers rise to a carry capacity level and then they don't don't rise beyond that. I'm not sure I see that in in, uh, the expansion of European hogs i mean they seem to be on a perpetual growth curve everywhere you find them
0: yeah you might be right about that um i don't know it's an ever ever changing problem um so project coyote this is something i came across uh in my research what's your involvement with project coyote and and what is it
1: project coyote is a uh another non-profit organization this one is uh based in uh, in California, in the Bay Area, it was started by a woman named Camilla Fox, who is the uh, the daughter of a a, a famous uh, wolf biologist, uh, who uh, Michael J. Fox, who actually writes a newspaper column for uh, syndicated newspaper column for a lot of newspapers. Uh, Camilla is uh, she was raised with uh, with pet wolves, uh, which her dad had. Uh and um when she uh when she got her uh her master's degree, uh she decided that her life's calling was going to be trying to protect canids of various kinds. I mean Project Coyote is involved in uh in wolf issues too. Uh and in fact most predators, I mean they they work with cats. Uh, cougars, uh, bobcats, lynx, but coyotes are kind of the uh, Camilla's first love. And what she's mostly been engaged with over the last 10 years or so is attempting to get states around the country, uh, and eight states so far have done so, to ban coyote hunting contests. Where it's often gun shops that sponsor these these hunting contests will uh, offer these weekend hunts, three day usually a long weekend hunt, invite people from around the country to show up, and the hunts take place uh, in the context of prizes and bets, so wow. that the people who kill the greatest number of coyotes, the largest coyote. The smallest coyote, uh, all sorts of angles on this over a three day hunt are given prizes, often cash prizes for going out and killing as many animals as they can. And of course, the end result of that is that they just throw them all away, uh, shoot a few pictures uh, with themselves, gathered around with 20, 30, 40, sometimes 100 plus coyotes. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. And so uh, that's that's what Project Coyote has primarily been trying to do that and try to convince wildlife services to give up the notion of uh, of killing coyotes to satisfy the sheep industry. But to try to get the livestock industry, the sheep industry, really, to rely on things like flattery which is uh, uh, electric fences with flags waving to, to drive coyotes away, are using <laughs> guard dogs uh, in the classic uh, Southwestern Hispanic tradition of using guard dogs to protect goat and sheep flocks. Yeah. And so they're trying to, trying to get wildlife services, which still kills 80,000 coyotes a year. It's a federal wow. agency on behalf of the American sheep industry to try to use non-lethal control methods. So, I mean, my engagement with Project Coyote has been something like what I've done with American Prairie Reserve. I've, I've largely uh, done, I've done internet spots for them uh, to help them raise money. Uh, I've gone around and, and spoken on behalf of the organization uh, from time to time. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I'm primarily a writer, so I spend my time mostly working on books and articles. But uh, when I have a chance to Help out uh, Camilla and the folks at Project Coyote. I'm certainly willing to do so, and uh, uh, just as with American Prairie Reserve, whenever I can help out, I try to I try to do that.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, you know, one of the reasons I love learning about more of these First Nations stories and traditions about animals is they they describe animals and think about them as our relatives, and I think conceiving, you know, that type of cosmology, which is what I think, I argue, Leopold was trying to, to argue for as well, is that we're part of a, the biotic community and that these are our relatives. We're not apart from this, um, this system. I think that that leads to a, a much more um, empathetic approach to wildlife management, if you want to call it that. You know, some of the behavior... Associated with those predator killing contests or with the hog eradication, um, it's really perturbing to to see the way that people treat these animals after their death. That would be completely taboo to stage these animals uh, in in a position and take a picture of them. That would be absolutely unacceptable based on your book to do to a coyote. You're not even allowed to to look at a coyote after it's dead in, in certain traditions, right? You know, you've got to do a ceremony to cleanse yourself lest the spirit of the coyote see you disrespecting its body. And uh, I think, you know, maybe regaining some of our mysticism around our our animal relatives would help us uh, treat them a little bit better.
1: I've been trying to uh, figure out with uh, the book I'm working on, Wild New World, when humans began to distinguish themselves from the rest of the animal world because i mean yeah. if you take take charles darwin seriously i mean uh, we're another animal we're right out of the evolutionary stream and uh to be sure we can do some very interesting things that a lot of other animals can't but one of the reasons for that is that uh it's hard to find any other animal that's seven billion strong on the planet and We have been doing for uh, at least uh, 200,000 years the same thing that many other animals do in terms of handing culture down. It's just we've been able to do it much more effectively because there are so many millions of us and because we have things like language and the internet to pass culture down from generation to generation. It's intrigued me that We're doing all this with exactly the same brains that people were leaving Africa and going around the world with 100,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago. We've got exactly the same size brains. Our brains are no bigger. We're no smarter. We just have thousands of generations of knowledge that we've handed down from one generation to the next to be able to create a world that seems to us to set us apart from everything else. And so I've been interested in in the work I'm doing on this book to try to figure out exactly when we we make this step, because going back to Neanderthals, the people who immediately precede us, it doesn't appear that they were making that distinction. They seem to assume that humans and other animals were exactly the same. So it's something that's happened since the evolution of homo sapiens our modern species uh that set us on this track to thinking we're exceptional we're different than they are and as you said a few minutes ago i mean one of the the great admirable things about a lot of indigenous peoples and native cultures is that they preserve this idea of kinship between humans and other animals, and when you think of other animals as canned, then you treat them with a lot more respect.
0: Yeah, you know, the first thing that sticks out is kind of thinking back to Abrahamic traditions and and the Old Testament saying, you know, um, essentially saying, here you go, you have dominion over this earth. God saying to, you know, people, um, be fertile, multiply, and you know, manage this, manage this place that I've created for me. And I don't know when that began, if that, you know, began long before, um, those stories arose, but uh, I'll be interested to, to read your book. What else can you tell me about this book and when is it coming out?
1: Uh, the book is called, uh, "Wild new world, uh, America's animals confront humanity is the subtitle. So, um, that subtitle, I hope, conveys the fact that the book's focus is on America, on North America, but specifically the part of North America that became the United States. And by using the term humanity, I'm trying to convey that this is a big history, that I'm going back to the beginning uh, of the period when humans arrive in North America and carrying the story down to the present day. So it's kind of a big sweeping history of uh, at least 15,000 years. And the truth is, I spend a lot of the very first chapter of the book uh, talking about how North America acquired its animals. I mean, we acquired uh, in the wake of the, uh, the extinction of the dinosaurs and the evolution of mammals. So in other words, the last 66 million years of history, that's when North America acquired the distinctive creatures that human beings would find here when we finally got to North America, last big continent on Earth that humans get to is North America and South America. And so uh, I spent a lot of time trying to describe how mammoths and bison uh, and Ivorybill woodpeckers and Carolina parakeets and passenger pigeons and all the other classic American creatures got to North America. Uh, and that process, of course, was either that they evolved here or that they migrated here from somewhere else. And then I bring humans into the story and, uh, and, the the pace uh, takes off from that down to the present. So it's a, a pretty big sweeping book that covers a lot of time and a lot of interactions with a lot of, a lot of different animals. Um, it's pretty close to done. Uh, I'll finish it, uh, by, uh, sometime early this fall. Uh, it's, uh, my agency, uh, sold it a couple of years ago to, uh, a New York press called WW Norton and, uh, Norton has it on their fall list for 2022. So while new world, uh, presumably will be out, uh, certainly by October or November of next year.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. I look forward to it. Be- uh, between now and then, I think I'll go back and and read your earlier work um at least that that expedition story that sounds fascinating um
1: yeah. and if you're from texas you probably should take a look at Caprock rock canyon lands because uh especially if you're from texas and you have the idea that west texas is just flat cotton fields yeah yeah
0: yeah that sounds all great. you
1: have to do actually is pick up that book and flip through it because it's got a lot of <laughs> photography in it of that country and uh i, I had the fun i wrote for a few articles about it uh, about that country for texas parks and wildlife and texas monthly back before i left texas and moved to the university of montana and had the fun of having people write texas monthly magazine and say i don't believe this story those (laughs) photographs are not of west texas those photographs were shot somewhere else Ha.
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's kind of someone described to me i haven't been yet but driving up on um I think it was Moab or arches. They were just saying like, where's the park? It's not here until you get right to the edge of the Canyon. And you're like, Oh my God, it just opens up. So I could definitely see, you know, not really understanding the the complexity or the topography of that landscape. I certainly have not experienced that. I, even being from Texas, um, I haven't been out to Paladuro or, or some of those areas. So, you know, uh, all, all
1: all those rivers that flow across Texas, they don't have their, except for the Rio Grande, they don't have their origins in the Rocky Mountains. They all come off the High Plains, the Llano Estacado Plateau. And as they come off the Llano Estacado, the Colorado, the Brazos, the Red, they all cut big canyons through the escarpment of that mesa.
0: Man, that's awesome. I I mean, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but your research, uh, where the hell do you start with this stuff, man? You're You're digging back into the fossil record, the geological history. I mean, how do you, what's your methodology?
1: Well, I will I'll say this. Uh, I always go, I always have a lot of questions when I'm working on a, on a book. And in order to answer the questions that I have, I always try to go to what I, I believe is the best field of study to answer the question. So if you're trying to figure out something about what animals were in North America during the Pleistocene, you go to the books on paleontology. If you're trying to figure out how people lived 10,000 years ago in in West Texas, you go to the archeologist. And if you're trying to figure out something about uh, cats something about coyotes, something about elephants. You go to the specific books that are on those animals and, and try to, you know, I mean the truth is it's science is not that difficult to read. If you keep your mind open and not try, not let yourself get snagged by the jargon that scientists will sometimes use, you can certainly figure out what they're trying to convey to you. And so to me, the best place to go when you're trying, when you've got an answer uh, that you're looking for to a question that's really, really puzzling you is to go to the, these best sources and the best fields of studies and find out what these folks say.
0: I think your talent comes in, in synthesizing all of that into a story that's compelling and, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of your writing, man. I actually, uh, I meant to ask you, I gave a book. I gave American Serengeti to my friend Thomas Woltz. He said he had dinner with you in Santa Fe.
1: He did, indeed.
0: Yeah, he, yeah. yeah he's a cool guy.
1: He is. Yeah, we had fun.
0: Nice. Yeah, I'm hoping to have him on the show. He was uh, looking at doing some work out in Montana, and I was like, you got to read this, man. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks but, uh, for recommending it. Yeah. Uh, well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. It's a real pleasure for me to talk to you after um, after reading your work, and I look forward to seeing what you do next. I'll be uh, patiently awaiting 2022 for that next book.
1: All right, Dylan, sounds good, man. I've enjoyed it.
0: All right, thanks, Dan. Take care. Sure. Coyote Creates Human Beings, a Nez Perce Legend One day, long before there were any people on Earth, a monster came down from the north. He was a huge monster, and he ate everything in sight. He ate all the little animals, the chipmunks and the raccoons and the mice, and all the big animals. He ate the deer and the elk and even the mountain lion. Coyote couldn't find any of his friends anymore, and this made him very mad. He decided the time had come to stop the monster. Coyote went across the Snake River and tied himself to the highest peak in the Wallowa Mountains. Then he called out to the monster on the other side of the river. He challenged the monster to try and eat him. The monster charged across the river and up into the mountains. He tried as hard as he could to pull Coyote off the mountain with his breath, but it was no use. Coyote's rope was too strong. This frightened the monster. He decided to make friends with the coyote, and he invited coyote to come and stay with him for a while. One day, coyote told the monster he would like to see all of the animals in the monster's belly. The monster agreed and let coyote go in. When he went inside, coyote saw that all the animals were safe. He told them to get ready to escape and set about his work. He built a huge fire in the monster's stomach. Then he took out his knife and cut the monster's heart. The monster died a great death, and all the animals escaped. Coyote was the last one out. Coyote said that in honor of the event, he was going to create a new animal, a human being. Coyote cut the monster up in pieces and flung the pieces to the four winds, where each piece landed, some in the north, some in the south, others to the east and west. In valleys and canyons and along rivers, a tribe was born. It was in this way that all the tribes came to be. When he was finished, Coyote's friend, Fox, said that no tribe had been created on the spot where they stood. Coyote was sorry that he had no more parts, but then he had an idea. He washed the blood from his hands with water and sprinkled the drops on the ground. Coyote said, here on this ground I will make the Nez Purse. They will be few in number, but they will be strong and pure. And this is how man came to be.